0: This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. Um, I am Lynn Slattery, and I represent the Office of Development here at RAND. And on behalf of all of my colleagues, we're so pleased to welcome you tonight. We appreciate such strong interest in this topic of truth decay. For those of you who are new to RAND, we celebrated our 70th anniversary last week. Woo, I know. (laughs) We're very proud of that. RAND is a nonprofit and unapologetically nonpartisan, and I didn't say bipartisan, nonpartisan research institution uh, with a mission to improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. As we like to say, much of RAND's finest work has been produced during America's most challenging eras after the Second World War, during the Cold War, Vietnam, the AIDS crisis, post 9 11, and continues today. Rand's visionary work has attracted some of the world's best minds, including many Nobel Prize winners, such as John Van Neumann, John Nash, and Herb Simon. And throughout its history, Rand has maintained the tradition of hiring wickedly intelligent people from a variety of disciplines. Um, And you'll meet uh, one of those wicked minds tonight, Jennifer Cavanaugh. We're very proud of her work. But before I'd go any further, um, I want to thank all of our supporters in the audience tonight, including our leadership represented by RAND trustee, Leonard Schaefer, and his wife, Pam, and um, several of our advisory board members here tonight. RAND's brand of nonpartisan, evidence-based research has become increasingly rare and ever more important. I think we can all agree on that. Likewise, philanthropy has become a growing factor in RAND's ability to deliver objective, actionable solutions to the world's biggest challenges. So RAND President and CEO Michael Rich uh, spent a good number of weeks this spring going around the country talking to donors, board members, uh, trustees and others about um, the priorities for RAND and its future agenda. And the issue that rose, uh, continuously rose above everything else was resoundingly this issue of truth decay. Michael will also point out that the projects that RAND undertakes with donor support frequently produce the greatest impact and generate the most interest, and that is certainly true with Truth Decay. Uh, for those of you contributing to RAND, I hope you'll leave this evening feeling very proud of the research that you helped make possible on this critical issue. There's been a tremendous amount of interest in Truth Decay. Scholars, the media, business leaders, and yes, even our elected representatives um, are paying attention to the work that RAND has done in this arena. If you share this vision uh, and you lo- would like to be a part of the solution, we um, hope that you'll approach one of us and ask how you can be involved. And so we are fortunate to have two experts here with us this evening to lead our discussion about the effects of truth decay on civil discourse, Jennifer Cavanaugh and Nicholas Goldberg. With Michael Rich, RAND's president and CEO, Jennifer is the co-author of Truth Decay, an initial exploration of the diminishing role of facts and analysis in American public life. Jennifer is a political scientist and associate director of the Strategy, Doctrine, and Resources program at the Rand Arroyo Center, as well as a faculty member of the Party Rand Graduate School. Nicholas Goldberg is the editorial editor for the Los Angeles Times, and in the 1980s and 90s, he served as Middle East correspondent and political reporter for New York's Newsday. His writing has been published in the New York Times, Vanity Fair, The Nation, the Sunday Times of London, among others. And now, please help me welcome Jennifer and Nick.
1: Good evening, thanks for coming. I wanted to thank Jennifer and Michael for doing this this uh Enormous amount of research, which is really particularly important to me, because my work is right on the, you know, on the edges of all the things you write about. It's about it. what I do has to do with opinion. It has to do with facts. It has to do with civil discourse. All of those issues are, are part of what I deal with day to day. So I'm very excited to be uh, to here to talk to you about it. But let's can we start with with the question of of what, is the, what does this mean when you say that uh, that we can 't agree on a common set of facts? I mean that sounds like a, a, an enormous problem for a society if, if people can 't begin to have conversations from a shared set of uh, shared accepted bit of knowledge. What does it mean? Can you give us some examples of things that are uh, um, where, where society disagrees on, on even the most basic? Piece of information.
2: Sure. So there's a number of different types of disagreement here. I think there's disagreement on objective facts that we can verify. Uh- with reality, and there's disagreement about um, more a more complicated set of facts that are based on analytical interpretations, where there's an overwhelming amount of scientific evidence, um, and there's a number of different issues that I would point to as examples of places where there is increasing disagreement about a set of facts or an interpretation of data that is well supported by an overwhelming amount of evidence. Um, And yet we see an increasing number of people who reject those facts, who ignore ignore them or who promote their own set of, of, of facts that really have no basis in reality or evidence. So examples would be the debate over the safety of vaccines, the debate over the safety of GMOs. Um, debate over the direction in which crime rates are moving we see clear data that suggests that violent crime in the united States is decreasing yet an increasing number of people believe that it's increased that that, that rate, ca- crime rate is actually increasing and there's no data to support that so there are these basic issues that are important for policy reasons where we see an increasing debate over what the facts actually are even though we have really good evidence that suggest that that provides us the answers to those questions
1: would you put climate change in that category
2: yeah climate change is another example
1: and what are, do you have any number for for one of those examples do you have any numbers that 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 show say the number of people who believe vaccines are dangerous and that or the, the percentage of, of the population that thinks that vaccines are dangerous and the percentage that, that does not?
2: Well, GMOs is a good example. In the early 2000s, about 20% of people thought GMOs were unsafe to unsafe to consume. And that rate had been pretty constant. So you see year after year about 20%, 20%. In 2015, that number was at 57%. So despite the fact that scientists, there's pretty a strong consensus among scientists that GMOs are safe to consume, um, the number of people who believe that they are unsafe has really skyrocketed. Um, vaccines is another good example. We have an increasing and overwhelming amount of evidence that su- suggests that vaccines are safe, that the benefits outweigh the risks. And yet, the number of people who question that has increased by 10% overall and significantly more in certain demographics, both on the right and the left, especially among young parents.
1: I mean, these are all, I have to say, you've touched on a series of issues that I, in my role, both as editorial page editor and because I oversee the op-ed page and because I oversee the letters to the editor, these are issues which we, on which we hear from people all the time. You know, huge numbers. Whenever we run a piece about vaccines, we hear from, from letter writers who say they are dangerous, they cause autism. We have other people saying you shouldn't even publish letters that suggest mm-hmm. that. And we, and we have, and we, GMO foods is something. Is the mm-hmm. same. We've been writing in editorials over and over for years that, that there's no evidence that mm-hmm. GMO foods are any more dangerous than any other foods, but you cannot convince you cannot convince people of that. So.
2: I mean part of this gets to when when bad information, when false information is is promoted and disseminated, once people see that information, if that confirms something that they already wanted to believe or uh, gives them a reason for a decision that they already wanted to make, that just strengthens their belief and it's really difficult to dislodge that belief. So you, there was a, a famous vaccine study, vaccines is again a great example that was published saying that vaccines were linked to autism. Uh, there's absolutely no evidence that study has been widely di- discredited and retracted. And yet people still point to that study as a reason why vaccines are unsafe, even though we know that the data in that, uh, in that study is actually not, not, not true.
1: And why do you think people refuse, and this is a big question and it mm-hmm. goes to the heart of your book, but why do you think people refuse to accept overwhelming evidence? What, what, would, what would lead someone to, to, to accept a discredited study?
2: Well, I think it really one big part of this is the role that cognitive biases play in the way that we consume information. There have always been characteristics of the way humans process information that makes us more likely to reject information that doesn't agree with or confirm our pre-existing beliefs. And there are any number of reasons why someone might decide that they don't want to vaccinate their children. And having that, um, the ability to find a study that confirms that belief just gives them further support. And as we see an increasing diversity of new sources. Sources, Which we've seen kind of a, a rapid increase in the number of sources and access to those sources on social media. It's really easy for people to find a source that agrees with them. And so we see this um, rippling across many, many different issues. If I want to find someone who agrees with me, I can do it. Um, and we get kind of, it's like a dopamine hit that we get from being right. And so people se- seek that out.
1: You you say in the report that there's more dispute about facts now than at any previous time in history that that you were able to find. And you went back and you looked at several other periods and you did find some of the problems we're facing Mm -hmm. today, but you did not find this dispute over basic facts. Can you tell us a little bit about what your historical research found?
2: Sure. So we wanted to understand truth decay within the historical context um, and the historical arc of the United States to see whether it was something new or something that we had seen before. And so we looked for evidence of the four trends that were mentioned in the video, the blurring of the line between fact and opinion, the overwhelming increase in the the volume of opinion compared to fact, declining trust in institutions, and disagreement over basic facts. And we were able to find evidence in previous periods, specifically the 1880s to 1890s, the 1920s to 1930s and the 1960s, 1970s of three of those trends. But but not that uh, disagreement over basic facts, and we see this taking different the, the trends taking different forms in different periods. So in the eighteen eighties to eighteen nineties, you may be familiar with yellow journalism, which was sensationalized or exaggerated stories that were included in newspapers to sell more papers. We see a similar thing in the twenties and thirties with the rise of radio. Radio in the nineteen thirties was very similar to cable news today, with powerful radio hosts who use their platform to spread their opinions. So we see these parallels, and we see declining trusted institutions in all these periods. And we've always had skeptics. We've always had people who questioned authority and people who disagreed about, uh, who have different opinions. That's normal. But we don't see this rejection of, of basic facts or this disagreement or inability to um, define a common shared set of facts. We weren't able to find evidence of that in these previous periods.
1: You, you single out for concern what you call the blurring of the line between opinion and facts. And I'm curious what you mean by that. I work for the LA Times. I and the L.A. Times has an opinion section. Is, mm-hmm. there, is there something wrong with opinion? Is there: mm-hmm.
2: There's you... nothing wrong with opinion. I think what we're concerned about is when opinion is presented as fact. So there, there should be opinion pages. And when we make decisions, we don't make decisions only based on fact. We make decisions based on fact and personal experience and what our friends and family think and our opinions and beliefs and values. And all those pieces of information are important. Just like in a newspaper, you have facts and you have analysis of those facts and you have opinion. All those pieces are important, but they should be labeled and separated so that people can see this is opinion. This isn't fact. Sure. And this is fact. This is factual reporting and this is commentary. That distinction has been blurred. So, you have opinion creeping into, uh, parts of the newspaper that previously presented mostly facts, and that can be confusing. And this is especially a problem on cable news and social media, where there's basically no distinction between what is a fact and what is opinion and what is commentary. And it's really difficult for for someone facing the onslaught of information that's available on the internet to determine which is which.
1: I mean, at the LA Times, just as at most big, mainstream American newspapers, we make a huge effort. You know, we, <laughs> have, a, we have a news section where, where reporters go go out, and their job is to, to gather the news in as unbiased and as objective a way as they possibly can. They don't always succeed, but they do their best, and And they, you read that story, and they leave it to the reader to draw conclusions and make judgments. In, in my section of the paper, on the opinion pages, and the editorial page, we take stands and we endorse candidates and we give our, give our opinion on things. What I tend to find, and I don't know if you've noticed this too, is it's not... It's not that we fail to distinguish mm-hmm. between news and opinion, but our readers mm-hmm. have a very hard time understanding the distinction between the different parts of the paper. So I'll get phone calls all the time from people who'll say, oh, I read your editorial this morning, and I have to tell you, it was biased.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, that's what we do. This is the biased part of the paper. <laughs> but I but I do think that it's important... Uh, I mean, I think even within an opinion section, you don't want to allow your opinion to become evidence-free, fact-free opinion. You want it to be, and this Mm -hmm. is what we try to do on our editorial page and in the things we publish on our op-ed page, you try to make sure that things are... um, are evidence-based, mm-hmm. intellectually honest, that they take on other people's point of view and try to out-argue them uh, in it in an honest way by by not uh, manipulating or, or mischaracterizing other people's arguments, mm-hmm. et cetera. And I think as long as you do that, yeah. it can work
2: well. I wonder if you've seen any changes in the responses to your editorials. Are those phone calls uh, complaining about bias on the editorial page? Is that something that's new or something that you've always seen?
1: I think we've always seen it up to a point, but there's absolutely no question that in the last few years, you know, our readers... are are much more polarized than they used to be they're much more angry than they used to be they are much more determined to believe what they want to believe newspaper editorial pages tend to be very middle of the road where we represent a big institution we are we write the the conclusion of an editorial board so it's a uh, uh, many people had to agree to it and that all those things sort of push us a little bit to, to take moderate stances. Well, our readers are not like that anymore. Our <laughs> readers, at least the ones who read us on the Internet and and comment, they're, they're all fired up from what they saw on MSNBC and what they saw on Fox News, and they want to know why we're not, you know, calling for someone's head today. or You know, mm-hmm. so it's... Uh, We've definitely seen yeah. seen an uptick of that,
2: and I definitely agree that some of the responsibility falls to the user. It's not just on uh, journalists to present the information clearly, but on users to take the time to figure out what is a fact and what is not, to critically evaluate the information they're consuming, and determine is this a good source that I should trust, or is this uh, you know a a not credible source.
1: Now, surely all of this is exacerbated by the constant shouts of, of fake news, uh, especially when it's when it's applied to news that is in fact not fake, uh, and, and the bashing of institutions and, and people in positions of power. Mm-hmm. Correct. Correct. Oh, I want to I, I wanna raise at this point the elephant in the room. I know it was we, we were told this is a, a non-partisan organization, but I mean. How does Donald Trump play into this? What what is the? Isn't isn't he the absolute and it's a nonpartisan place, but I'm not nonpartisan. Isn't he the absolute embodiment, personification, and apotheosis of all the things you're talking about?
2: So our approach was this was again, as I said, to consider truth decay within the historical context, and we clearly see that we've seen things like this before in the past, and when we even look at the current period, we see that it it really started several decades ago, probably around 2000, the early 2000s, when we start to see these trends emerging and they continue on to today. And we didn't find that the start of this current period of truth decay was linked to any particular political event or political administration or political figure. And instead, we see it... continue through several different administrations with different parties. Certainly, the things that we're seeing in Washington today are good good examples of this phenomenon that we're talking about. But this phenomenon predates the current administration and will probably continue afterwards. So I I think that it's important to think about this as a systemic challenge, and it's going to require a systemic and uh, well thought out and a complex set of solutions. Um, I think that it's it's, it's likely that we would still be having this conversation if the outcome of the election had been very different we would just have different examples to point to
1: what are, are there any good examples of pre donald trump uh you know, fake news, actual fake news, things that people began to believe that were not evidence-based. What are some of the...
2: Well, I mean, if you look at the, some of the trends I, that I spoke about before, um, the trends in, in GMOs, GMOs vaccines, yeah. and crime rates. If you look at when uh, the, the the divergence between the direction of actual uh, crime and or the rates of crime, estimates of the rates of violent crime, and people's attitudes, that's, they diverge into start starting around 2003. So up to 2003, they track really closely... As crime declines, so do people's belief. They uh, people believe that it's decreasing, and that changes around 2003. You start to see this sharp divergence. So a lot of these issues were things that started beforehand.
1: So, so let's talk a little bit about what what does it mean if we can't agree on basic facts? What's the What's the effect of that? Is it the mm-hmm. effect on on policymaking on on uh, what are, What are the main negatives of that?
2: Well, I think the first is that we uh, see an erosion of civil discourse. And by civil discourse, I mean the ability to have a frank and honest and open discussion about uh, about important policy issues um, with people with whom you disagree. Uh, we should have disagreements. We should have debates and, um, and discussions. And we should have differences of opinion. That's part of having a democracy is having those discussions. Increasingly, we don't see those discussions happening. Instead, they end up being personal attacks or you avoid the topic altogether because you know that it's going to kind of light like a... an explosion um, between or destroy a relationship, and so either response, e- if it dis- disintegrates into personal attacks, or it doesn't happen, um, those those threaten the foundation of our democracy, which is our ability to have these important discussions. That also bleeds into our policymaking process. When our policymakers don't have a shared set of facts, it's difficult for them to debate policy options, to think about uh, what are the pros and cons of different different approaches. Instead, we increasingly see them spending. The the whole time arguing about what the facts are, uh, so we never actually get to the policymaking process. And then the policymaking process is condensed because we wasted all that time arguing about the facts. And so we end up with policies that that are that have unintended consequences or that don't actually address the challenges that we that we wanted them to. And they, these periods of stalemate have really significant consequences. And you you can point to some of the economic consequences. For example, the economic consequences of a government shutdown. Estimates of how much the 2013 government shutdown costs are on the order of 15 to 20 billion dollars in lost GDP. And those are low estimates because they don't include second order effects. So these costs are enormous. We could do a lot with 15 to 20 billion dollars rather than just waste it. So I think that it's important to think not only about the role that this plays in policymaking, but the role that it uh, or the effects that it has on our ability to have these really important discussions at a lower level.
1: I want to to go back to what you were saying about personal relationships. I mean, I grew up uh, my whole life in New York and in L.A. in relatively liberal milieus surrounded mostly by Democrats and people who considered themselves left of center. But at no time in my life did I hear something that I hear now on a regular basis, basis, which is People saying they don't know anyone who is from the other political party than they are. People saying they wouldn't want to know people who were Republicans. People who say that if their child were to marry a person from another political party, that they would be unhappy about this. I mean, these are, these are things that shock me because I don't understand how a country can. Have, have you never heard that? I, I, I hear it often in Los Angeles, and I've never heard it before. Maybe it's a Los Angeles thing, <laughs> but I, I, I suspect it's something that's, that's changing. And I, and I know there's been some, and mm-hmm. maybe you have some of the data, there have been polls and surveys that mm-hmm. have asked people about these questions. Mm-hmm. Are those numbers changing?
2: Well, so I think that our polarization, the level of polarization we have right now is significantly worse than what we've seen in the past. And I'm not just talking about political polarization, but also economic, social, and demographic polarization. So it's increasingly common, and I think this gets to what you were talking about, that we live with, we go to, we, we work with, we go to school, we go to uh, social activities and religious services with people who are very similar to us. They lo- um, they have similar beliefs, they have similar backgrounds, they have similar uh, economic status, similar values. Um, and so we end up living with um, in s- sort of bubbles p- with, uh, with people who are very much like us and who share our, be- our beliefs and our values. And so it is, data suggests, increasingly uncommon for people to live in really heterogeneous communities where they're constantly interacting across party lines. And the reason is that these partisan divides have collapsed a lot of these other identity groupings. So rather than having one kind of economic class and one um, political class and one uh, you know living somewhere else, we have all these things are collapsed along a single boundary line. And so that partisan identifier has become increasingly important not just for the political beliefs but kind of as an identity marker. And so that I think is why you see a lot of this.
1: And in, But in the in In the old days, we may have still lived, you know, geographically in somewhat segregated neighborhoods of people like ourselves, but we all went home and we watched, theoretically, Walter Cronkite on TV, right? We all heard the same shared information. How does that that's no longer the case, right? People get their mm-hmm. information from a, a wide, wide variety of places and they tend to go to the places they believe in. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, so there are so many, now we have so many different sources of news, so many different choices. And a lot of those choices are, um, you know, cable news is increasingly um, sort of an entertainment platform. It's not necessarily a news platform. And so they provide information that is um, sensational and shocking to attract viewers. And people go to, to whatever shocking outlet provides them the shock that they want, right? There's shock on every side. It's just which one you you prefer to see. Um, and that, you know, heightens this level of polarization because instead of watching Walter Cronkite or um, the PBS NewsHour or something else that's a little bit more objective and has facts, you end up with um, seeing very skewed versions of the world and that's kind of what you internalize. And it's the same thing on, thing on social media. The way that social media and uh, internet platforms work is that they provide you stuff that is very similar to what you had before and to what you like. So if you haven't been on on a social media platform, say Twitter or Facebook, for a while, it'll say, um, "Here's what you missed while you were gone," and it provides you, but only things that you've looked at before. So you're getting a very skewed view of the world. Um, and and it's the same thing when you Google something. If you Googled an event or you looked it up, you would get things that were very skewed to what you had already already seen before. So we're, the information that we're consuming is further uh, deepening or worsening these divides and these um, bubbles because we aren't consuming the same type of information. And this choice, this, this access to more sources is a good thing. It should be a good thing. Uh, democratized access to information is important. Um, but it also creates challenges, and I don't think that yet um, research suggests that, you know, our, our regulatory frameworks and our uh, ways of managing this information hasn't caught up to the, to the volume of information we have.
1: I mean, I think I work for, I, I hope you all agree, I think I work for, you know, one of the more responsible Parts of the media, where, as I said before, we, we take facts seriously, we we do our best to uh, <clears throat> to be intellectually honest. But even even where I work, I mean, we feel these exact pressures. I mean, there's there we're. You know, as newspaper readership declines and goes to the Internet, as as revenues decline, as circulation de- declines, we're under more and more pressure to write things, to write them faster, to write things that people will click on. We've learned, especially in the opinion pages, that if you want people to click on things, you, you will do a lot better if you take a very strong opinion, if you are snarky, if you have attitude, <laughs> if you are negative. I mean, these are all things that, that people want to read. They don't want to read wishy-washy, uh, you know, s- subtle, nuanced um, articles about public policy issues. So there's, there's constant pressure to be to be moving in that direction, even at the best places. Mm-hmm. I think. Do you see the um, the blurring of opinion into the news pages uh, and into news stories at serious papers like the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, the Wall Street Journal?
2: I mean, I can think of examples of, of, of things in the New York Times and the Washington Post that we've pointed to, areas where um, in, in an attempt to digest and interpret information for readers, um, that is, a, is is useful, but if it's not labeled appropriately, if it's not labeled as interpretation of the facts, um, readers can consume it as fact. Um, and so I think there are examples. Um, I don't think that they are intentionally trying to mislead people. They're trying to digest and interpret information in a way that's useful to the reader. But this is where I get back to the point of kind of labeling and transparency. Just be clear about what type of information is they are presenting so the reader knows, okay, this is analysis. This is not only fact. It's also the writer's interpretation of this information.
1: At the LA Times opinion pages, we wrote a huge series last year about Donald Trump. Very, very critical of Trump. Uh, I'm Probably second to no one in my uh, willingness to criticize the president, but i I feel strongly that that newspapers in their news pages have to stay objective, have to make sure that, you know, Donald Trump is a very different kind of president than we've had before. I absolutely agree with the New York times and the LA times in their, in their feeling that if he says things that are untrue, that it is our responsible, our responsibility to make sure that we correct those things. Mm-hmm. But I think we have to be very careful not to cross a line into becoming partisans ourselves. And, and I have seen that and mm-hmm. I believe I've seen that, uh, in a number of the big mainstream papers, Mm -hmm. which I where I think there are an awful lot of people who Mm -hmm. feel that the election of Donald Trump was a disaster. They feel complicit in it in some way. Mm -hmm. And they feel it's almost their job to help, you know, bring Mm -hmm. this man down. And as a result, they allow uh, opinion to bleed into their into their newspapers. And I think that's a real problem.
2: Mm -hmm. And do you think it's just the context, the current political context that drives that? Or is there again this economic motive? That that's what they think readers want. That so they're trying to you know provide readers what they want to attract. I,
1: I think in this case it's political. Okay. I I believe that. I mean there's there's also an economic uh, um, imperative to get people clicking on things and to and to be strong and, and snarky as I said. But that's different. From, I do think that there is there are certain biases in the news sections of big newspapers that the reporters and the editors. Have to fight against because because if they become too closely identified, you know, if if people you know if people read too many unfair stories, then newspapers <coughs> lose their credibility, and and we can't allow that to happen. So we we don't have very much time before we take questions. So so let's just talk a little bit about what can be done about all this. Mm-hmm. What what are, what are the steps that need to be taken to try to. Uh, Ensure that that we revert to being a fact based, evidence based society in which people can communicate with one another, even if we don't always agree with one another, have a civil discourse, and reach rational compromise,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, e- even among people who uh, who have strong differences mm-hmm. of opinion.
2: Well, the first thing I would say is I think there's a lot that we still don't know. And it's important to answer those questions before we start designing solutions. So to give you an example, we actually don't have a good measure of how much disinformation is out there. And we don't have a good measure of how much there used to be. So we're not able to track it. We feel like there's more now. And there probably is. But that could also be the fact that we just have it on our phone all the time. And it's constantly in our face. So... So we need things, we need metrics of those types of uh, ways to understand the contour of the problem, because if we're going to design solutions, it seems short-sighted to design solutions without actually being able to measure and understand the problem. And there are a number of areas where I think that that is an important first step. But I will point to a couple areas where I think there are solutions that we should look for. One is education. I think think there have to be top-down and bottom-up solutions here. And part of the bottom-up solution is teaching people um, how to interpret information? What's a good source? What's a bad source? How should you evaluate the difference? How do you form an opinion um, by bringing together lots of information from lots of different sources and synthesizing it? Um, how do you judge bias and understand um, the bias of the reporter or the bias of the outlet? Those are important questions. And it's not clear, based on the research that we've done, that students are getting those skills in schools right now. Um, part of that is just the fact that technology changes really fast and institutions like schools change slowly. So there's this gap between what students are getting and what adults have, right? We didn't get these skills necessarily in schools either because the internet didn't exist, um, and and the demands of that information system. And so thinking about how do we structure media literacy education either as a standalone course or something that's integrated into curriculum that can help provide these skills is one area. Another area is thinking about what we can do to improve the quality of information that's available to people. And there's a range of different options there, ranging from some sort of government regulation, thinking about social media as a public utility or thinking about how we could increase liability for false information of social media platforms, things that don't touch the First Amendment but that would still help us get at the problem. We need to explore solutions like that, as well as what tech companies themselves could do, um, what third parties could do in terms of monitoring and fact-checking. Those those are other areas where I think we can explore what are the best policy solutions. And finally, restoring trust in institutions. In order to have a shared set of facts, we need to have – Places that people can look to as sources of those facts. And I don't think we have that now. We know that trust in institutions is very low, but we don't know why people don't trust institutions. What are the characteristics of institutions that people don't trust? Is it that they think, when people say they don't trust the media, is it because they think reporters are dishonest? Or is it because they think the coverage overall is just biased? Those two answers prov- suggest very different approaches to solving a problem. And so I think that's another area where we need to, um, thinking about what can we do to rebuild trust and what but first we need to know that the answer to that why question so those are three areas that we're currently exploring in our follow-on work to try to think about how can we get at some of these solutions
1: at the risk of, of wearing out my welcome I just want to reiterate that it can't possibly uh, be good for people's level of trust in institutions to have a president of the United States who's constantly uh, undermining institutions, who's constantly, yeah, I mean, take the media, I mean, to say the, you the know, media, the enemies of the people, to say that things that are true that appear on page one of the Washington Post are fake news when they're not, to, you know, to call CNN, you know, failing pile of garbage. I mean, that, and that's just the media. I mean, he's undermined courts in certain ways as well. He's undermined the, bu- the federal bureaucracy. He's undermined Congress. I one hundred percent agree with you that this didn't start <sighs> mm-hmm. with with President Trump, and that that he is a he's a manifestation of something. But it, mm-hmm. it also seems to me that he he exacerbates mm-hmm. it.
2: So, I mean, uh, uh, trust in in these institutions was falling well before, well before Trump. Um, We've only had, you know, a year and a half of the Trump administration. So we don't really have a good sense of whether that decline now is steeper or faster than it was before. So we, you know, we'd have to measure that to see whether this seems to be making it worse or not. But, you know, it's an important question to understand how that rate of change varies across administrations. Um, But certainly, I mean, you could point to things that have happened uh, recently, as well as things that have happened over the past um, five or 10 years. Years that have really undermined uh, trust in institutions and signals coming from, from political elites or um, from other uh, respected uh, figures of authority on um, both sides of the political spectrum um, do have an impact in how people view institutions.
1: Great. Thank you. At this point, I want to open it up to questions. There's a person with a microphone right there. There are a lot of hands in the air already. Yeah. To what extent is this a problem in Europe, uh, England, France, Germany, Italy, Poland?
2: Mm-hmm. So it's definitely a global problem. It's not just a problem in the United States. We focused in this work just on the United States because we felt like to do a good job of understanding what was happening elsewhere. We first had to figure out what was happening here. Um, but you definitely see examples of where this is happening in um, you know, y- the United Kingdom with the Brexit um, in elections in uh, France and Germany. So this is definitely a problem that, um, that, is affecting democracies generally right now um, across the world as well, you see it also in developing countries, in places like Sri Lanka and Indonesia, it's also a problem. So I think in terms of understanding the broader systemic phenomena, it's important to recognize that this isn't something that's just here. So it's not just our political context, but it's all these other drivers, the, um, the changes in the information system and the volume of information we have, um, and kind of this breakdown in institutional trust is, again, something that we see globally, which I think is a very important piece of it.
1: Nicholas if you were to publish truth decay and civil defense where would you put it in your newspaper I mean where
0: where would you put it if I we mean to, to push pub- this if we were to publish
1: what if we were to write about yes, this issue?
0: yeah where would you put it well
1: the reason I'm here on this stage today is because when the truth decay report came out uh we got a call from rand and and they said we have this new report coming out we thought you might be interested in it and i read it and i was interested in it and i wrote an editorial about it uh which came when was that a few january back back in january so the editorial page and the op-ed pages are are among the parts of the paper where we've talked about a lot of these issues about you know, disrespect for institutions, about battles over facts. These are things that we were writing about uh, even even before the Truth Decay Report came out. And uh, and uh, they really pulled it together and made it coherent and, and gave a lot of evidence for, for many of the things that we'd already been writing about. And we write about it in the news pages as well.
0: Have you noticed a difference in the demographics in terms of the level of disintegration of truth between age levels, millennials versus olders, et cetera?
2: So I think you see it across demographic groups, but it manifests in different ways. Um, so I think, uh, you know, trust in uh, conventional media tends to be higher among um, older uh, generations, they trust social media and other types of sources much less because they're less familiar with it. Um, in terms of trust uh, in government institutions, I mean, that's pretty much across the board. But there you actually see the trust declining much more among younger generations who feel disillusioned with democracy and uh, and, the, and and the other institutions of uh, government that seem unable to address a lot of the current problems that we're facing. Um, so I think you see uh, different levels of decline in trust in different populations. The other thing I think that's really important is this why question. Um, we have data right now that we haven't analyzed yet, but we're in the process of doing it. And I suspect I my hypothesis is that the reason why different demographic and age groups trust institutions or distrust institutions is going to be very different. Um, so I think that, you know, everyone is struggling with this issue of trust. But the reasons why and the institutions specifically that that's targeted at do vary, I think you were addressing the issue of young students how do we handle students learning what to say how to say when colleges unfortunately the professors teach what to think not how to think i think it begins in college and especially when the professorship is by and large on the liberal side the percentage. Uh, one way or the other is enormously lopsided and I think that's where it begins. How do you handle that if you think the students, that's where we begin, you have to be a student and then an adult. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that there's any evidence that I've seen that suggests that professors are by and large teaching students how to think. I also don't think there's any evidence that professors are influenced in how they teach based on their political persuasion. So I think that um, in the academic community, the the objective is to provide information about their knowledge base and what they learn and what they are an expert in. And that is largely separate from their political and personal opinions and experiences. Of course, everybody has biases and those biases certainly come across. But I do think that um, there is an effort in um, in universities uh, um, across the country to uh, provide knowledge in a way that is um, biased and that is unbiased, excuse me, unbiased and um and that teaches students how to think about important issues um, and how to grapple with different opinions. And that, of course, varies across universities. So I think that it's difficult to lump all universities into one bucket because there is a wide variation in the way students are taught, um, the types of people that are hired, and the types of students that attend, and what the goals of those institutions are. Um, but... I- uh, I haven't seen any evidence that that these things are um, perhaps as significant a problem as sometimes portrayed in the popular press.
1: But I do think it's—I mean, I don't know if Jennifer agrees. I, I think it's hugely—this is not specifically about students, but I think it's hugely important that people be— um, Exposed to opinions other than their own, to ideas other than those they grew up with, that whether it's at college, whether it's in the newspaper, wherever it is, our our ability to to wall ourselves off and only see things that reinforce what we already thought weakens our ability to be yeah. critical thinkers, weakens our ability to make smart judgments and understand things. So when I was the editor of the op ed page of the L.A. Times, I came to the paper. Uh, And, you know, almost everything on that page, not the editorial page, which is left of center, and that's the way it is, that's the opinion of that page, but on the op-ed page, where we run things from people outside the paper, we were only running liberal to left things and i said well it can't be like that we have to we have to find more conservative columnists we have to find people who take other points of view we need to find people who are whose politics are hard to characterize because they're they're independent thinkers and and I started to do it and I got a lot of readers complaining. They said, Well why why are you running this conservative stuff? You know, we want we just we just want what you've been giving us because we we want to uh uh be reaffirmed in what we already think. And I, I think that's very sad and too bad and I'm I'm all for uh, bringing exposing people to the widest possible range of ideas. Yeah,
2: I would agree a hundred percent with that, and I think universities vary in in how effective they are in making sure that students get access to uh, to different viewpoints, and in making sure that that all viewpoints are given a chance to be expressed, so that students are forced to learn how to deal with things they disagree with or that they don't like.
1: Jennifer related to the. Thesis of education. Most people in this country don't go to college, don't go to universities, don't go to graduate schools, but most Americans are products of early childhood development, K 12 education. Has Rand looked at public education leading to citizenship and leading to critical (laughs) thinking and providing? evidence for shaping your curriculum?
2: We are working on a project that's very related to that now, and I know that our education unit is also doing work in this area of how we can better shape uh, curriculum for young students to prepare them uh, to be adults. Um, I think that it's that one thing that we're doing right now is to try to get a, um, uh, a good uh, understanding of the programs that currently exist in terms of media literacy programs, civic literacy programs, um, things that last for a day and things that last for a year, um, to understand the approaches that they're taking and to understand how effective they are at actually producing the outcomes that we want to see. Um, and to the extent that they are or they are not, there are ways that they can be improved. Um, and there are a number of areas that we're focusing on, things that we think students, based on our research, probably need. One is statistics education so they can understand and read polls when statistics are presented in newspapers. The second is a, a good uh, education or grounding in scientific method and understanding the basic scientific facts. There are a lot of important issues that are science-based. We've talked about a lot of them tonight. Um, In order to understand and be part of those debates, you need to understand those issues. Um, Social studies and civics education. Um, It's important that people understand why it's important to to learn facts. Why is it worth your time to become an informed citizen? That's part of being a citizen in a democracy. But but that importance has to be communicated, um, can can be communicated through schools. And finally, critical thinking. There's a lot of focus now in K-12 education on standardized testing. It's not clear that the type of education, the type of skills that students are taught to do standardized, to complete standardized tests are the skills that they need to complete the complex critical thinking challenges that they're faced with in the current information environment. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily that... Um, that we've gotten worse at critical thinking or that we're doing a worse job of providing those skills. But it's also that the um, the, cha- the critical thinking challenges have gotten harder and we haven't yet adopted, adapted our curriculum. So those are areas where I think it's worth focusing our attention, and that's what we're doing now both under this umbrella of truth decay as well as in our education units. Is
1: there is there any indication that students in other countries are being taught better how to be critical thinkers or how to... Uh, Read polls or how to understand basic scientific methods.
2: So I think that in Europe, at least, they're they're definitely grappling with these same issues. The <clears> European <throat> Commission has put out several reports recently, and some of those focus on um, on media literacy education. There's a, a Rand our Rand Europe office is actually working on a project for the European Commission focused on this issue of media literacy. Many of the same issues we're grappling with, they are also grappling with. There have been um, more advanced efforts in certain countries, like Italy has a very a pretty advanced media literacy uh, program. They do seem to be a little bit ahead in terms of being aggressive in this area of education, but certainly there's a lot of activity in that area here as well.
1: Uh, I noticed that three of the most recent time periods map on to eras of a lot of de- demographic unrest. Have you looked at the relationship between uh, truth decay and intergroup conflict?
2: So we do see. I agree with you that there does seem to be uh, this kind of social tension or social conflict at these periods in which we see truth decay. And I do think that there is something to this idea of things changing really quickly and people responding by um, kind of pulling backwards and pulling and hanging on to what they know or hanging on to um, their tribe or their group a group that provides them some kind of safety and stability. I do think that there is something to that explanation. In our historical analysis thus far, we really focused just on identifying the trends and what we're hoping to do next is to do two things one is to think about whether these dr- the same drivers are present and to what extent and that would get at your question about this um, the the role that this social conflict or demographic conflict plays um, and the second is to think about how we got out of these periods in the past and whether we can extract lessons from those periods that we could apply to today earlier during your presentation you mentioned the split began to appear around 2003, and I did a quick search just now as to as to various things that happened around the area that, are, that have become uh, mainstays of modern life, such as the invention of Google. Have you found any particular service that is present-day that emerged around 2003 that might be a correlating factor? So I think it's... It's typically a confluence of events that appears to drive these things. So it's not just one specific factor, but it's um, uh, you could li- liken it to a tipping point where m- many different factors um, combine to cause this problem. So a number of things happened in 2003. You know, the Internet is obviously gaining increasing traction around this time. We have um, the war in Iraq, uh, which created a, l- a lot of tension and um, questioning about um, the veracity of information provided by the government and other institutions. And so these types of things, um, you know, we just gone through a period of um, political conflict over the Bush v. Gore decision. So these are the types of things that together um, kind of pushed us towards, I think, are, or appear to have pushed us towards um, some of these trends that we start to see emerging 11th. around this. September 11th is another good example. So I don't think it was one specific event, but rather kind of a piling up of events um, that eventually pushed us toward this point. Did you find any role of religion or decline of religion in your findings? Um, we didn't find a direct relationship between decline in religion and truth decay. Um, you know, we did look broadly at all, you know, social, uh, social patterns and trends and data to try to understand what was going on. Um, religion wasn't something that bubbled to the surface as something that was um, a, a key piece or a key driver or a key consequence. Um, but certainly religion is part of where people get their beliefs and their attitudes and their opinions. And so to that extent, it, it does play a role in that indirect way.
1: And you talk about the decline of institutions generally. And, certainly and so the, the, church church is,
2: the church and other institutions are, um, are are part of that decline in trust. So yes, that's correct.
1: First of all, thank you both for being here tonight. It's been very illustrative. Uh, this one is directed to you, Mr. Goldberg. Uh, the LA Times, you've described the LA Times as you see it, as a newspaper. And it in itself is going through a change of ownership. And I haven't seen it, maybe I've missed it, any questioning about what is the agenda of the buyer of the LA Times and what is the proposed editorial policy of the newspaper and it seems to me that's a serious issue with the transfer of control of any newspaper and I'm sort of wondering unless you've done it and I missed it, why not? Why not what? What's his agenda? Why does he want to control the LA Times? Is the editorial policy going to be similar or different? I can assure you that there is no one who is more curious about what his editorial policy will be than me. Uh, It it matters a great deal, you know, uh, for those of you who don't know, the LA Times has been through a series of of ownership changes, management changes, you know, cutbacks, shrinkages, all sorts of things have happened to us. We've been owned for a long time now by a company that's not based in Los Angeles, Uh, all kinds of Difficult things have happened to the paper, which has struggled, and in my opinion, the newspaper has done an extraordinary job of continuing to report the news under the given the constraints that it's been under. Now, uh, in 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 the latest stunning piece of news, the paper is about to be uh, well. The paper is supposedly about to be sold to one of Los Angeles's most most wealthy men, a uh, uh, doctor named Patrick Soon-Shiong. And the deal hasn't closed yet. I've met with him briefly. I've met with people who work with him briefly. We're just beginning to have discussions about a, why he's buying the paper, what he hopes to get from the paper, what he hopes to do with the paper, how much he hopes to spend on the paper, and, as as you pointed out, what interests me, what are, what, how does he uh, plan to change, if at all, the editorial pages, the stands we take on issues. Does he like what we wrote about Donald Trump? Does he like what we wrote about homelessness? Does he like what we, you know, that we, you know, endorsed... Uh, this person for Senate and that person for governor, uh, the answer is you haven't, heard it. you haven't heard the answers from us because we don't know the answers yet. My hope is that thanks to Jennifer's work, media literacy will become mandatory in every school in the country and every school child will be required to subscribe to their local newspaper and all our problems will be over.
2: <laughs> and I'm afraid that's the end of our time for questions.
0: Thank you both, Nick and Jennifer, so very much for a great discussion. Um, and thank you, everybody, for the great questions. Um, I will say I'm going to take the, the opportunity to put in a plug for supporting institutions like RAND that do important work like this. Again, this work that Jennifer's embarked on was supported through unrestricted philanthropic support. Thank you all. <laughs> RAND.org for publications. Visit our pubs table. Thank you. Thank you. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org/events.